What, you may be wondering, are the primary issues and themes relating to gender in Muslim communities on each side of the Atlantic? And how do the two settings compare in this regard? How do British and American Muslim experiences of gender compare? Where, where do they converge and where do they diverge? And how has the Me Too movement resonated within Muslim communities in each context? Join us on this edition of the Maidan podcast as we speak to Dr. Sylvia Chan Malik of Rutgers University and Dr. Khadija Al-Shayal of Edinburgh University. A special edition of the Maidan podcast focused on the theme of gender in the Muslim Atlantic. Great. So I want to welcome all of our listeners to this edition of the Maidan podcast, uh, where we're going to be talking about the theme of gender in the Muslim Atlantic. My name is Peter Mandeville. I'm a senior research fellow at the Ali Al Ak Center for Global Islamic Studies and professor of international affairs in the Shar School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, which is also where the Ali Al Ak Center is based. The Muslim Atlantic Project is a partnership between King's College London, uh, where the project is led and directed by Professor Dan Nilsen Dehanis, um, a partnership between King's College, uh, George Mason University, with support from the British Council. The objective of this initiative is to explore uh, the relationship between Muslim communities on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, in this case, specifically, the United States and the United Kingdom. Uh, we're asking questions about um, how these two communities um, have evolved over time in terms of their perceptions and impressions of each other, uh, some of the ways in which there's been a cross-fertilization and exchange of ideas between these two communities. We're also trying to compare and contrast their respective experiences, um, although it one might think that Muslims in the U.S. and the U.K. Um, have a lot in common for historical reasons, uh, mainly tied to um, uh, circumstances of immigration. And as we explore uh, in this project, um, uh, a lot of, of, of the legacy of, of debates uh, about race and civil rights um, the, these, these communities actually um, have, in many ways, ex have very different kinds of experiences. Um, and this project is, is kind of built around three core themes, uh, gender, race, and the concept of securitization, something that both communities have certainly faced uh, since 9-11, is the idea of Muslim communities increasingly being perceived as a security risk and, and portrayed, thought of, surveilled, engaged by the broader society around them primarily in relation to themes of uh, security. Um, our particular episode today is going to focus on the theme of gender in the Muslim Atlantic. And we are very fortunate to have um, two fantastic guests who are going to help us understand and talk through this theme. And I want to go ahead and introduce each of them briefly right now. Um, Dr. Sylvia Chan Malik is a scholar of American studies, critical race and ethnic studies, and women's and gender studies uh, at Rutgers University in New Jersey in the United States, where she's an associate professor in the Department of Women and Gender Studies. Uh, her current research focuses on the history of Islam in the United States, and more broadly, she looks at the intersections of race, gender, and religion 
and how these categories interact in struggles for social justice. Uh, she teaches courses on race and ethnicity in the United States, Islam in and Islam and America, social justice movements, feminist methodologies, multi-ethnic literature and culture in the U.S. and 20 and 21st century U.S. history. Um, Sylvia is joined on the podcast today by Dr. Khadija Al-Shayal, uh, who recently completed a postdoctoral fellowship at the Al-Walid Center for the Study of Islam and the Contemporary World at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland in the United Kingdom, where she continues to work as a teaching fellow. Uh, with a specialization in the contemporary history of Muslims in Britain, her research interests lie in the representation, political and cultural engagement of Muslims and ethnic minorities in the UK. Uh, she is the author of Muslim Identity Politics, Islam, Activism and Equality in the UK, in, sorry, in Britain, which was published last year by I.B. Taurus. And I also want to add that Sylvia also has a recent and very well-received book out called Being Muslim, A Cultural History of Women of Color, in American Islam, published uh, last year by New York University Press. Um, and we would be remiss if we didn't at some point in the conversation have each of them uh, tell us a little bit about their recent book. So welcome to both of you in Ramadan Karim. Thank you very much. Thank you. To so, you as well. Thank you. Thank you. I, I want to begin by asking each of you to talk about your broad perceptions of Muslim communities on the other side of the Atlantic from where you are. And, and, you know, you could respond to this either from your personal perspective or, you know, based on your sense of how Muslims in the U S and the UK see each other. Um, Sylvia, can we, can we start with you? Sure. Um, first of all, thanks so much for having us. <clears throat> it's a real pleasure to be in conversation with Khadija and with yourself. <clears throat> and I wanted to start off by saying, um, we had a wonderful meeting that was part of facilitating a conversation uh, around the Muslim Atlantic that took place uh, in London uh, a few months ago. I can't, I can't remember what month right now. It was February or March. It was February, right? It was February, yes. And it was a really wonderful meeting because, as you said in your introduction, uh, you know, there is this perception. I, you know, I think there is a general perception that there's a flattening of experience of Muslims. Like that is how Muslims get perceived in the West that, you know, they're, they're kind of in, 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 in one way stereotyped in, in the same way, right. Through this Orientalist lens, but also in, in the post nine 11 era and the post seven, seven era, there's also this perception that uh, the experiences of Muslims, even within the community is sort of the same. And so far as, we, both in the U.S. and the U.K., are dealing with the same issues of surveillance and the same issues of profiling and, you know, uh, marginalization, right? So what I think that meeting in the U.K. and this continuing conversation really illuminates is how, as you said, these very distinctive contexts of race, history, uh, citizenship, nation, uh, colonialism, how all of those form the foundations of how Muslim identity emerges in the U.S. and U.K. contexts and uh, produces particular uh, uh, formations of identity and expressions of culture from those communities. And so in regards to the perceptions that came out of that meeting and, and things I've been thinking about a lot since then, uh, is this idea that the question of race and how race plays out in 
the US and the UK is so central, right, to how Muslims are constituting their their identities and not only their identities, but their politics and their political expressions. And one thing that has become increasingly uh, and, and you know increasingly apparent to me is that in the US, uh, the history of blackness and anti-blackness in relation to Islam and Muslims is absolutely foundational for, okay. to understanding how uh, Islam has uh, emerged and unfolded in a particular set of racial politics in the U.S. Um, as I'm sure many of the listeners know, uh, the, the, the first group of Muslims in the U.S., uh, were enslaved Africans, right? And so anywhere from 10 to 20% is estimated of enslaved peoples to the U.S. were Muslim. Um, and so that historical fact really shapes the evolution uh, of how Islam has come to be imagined in the U.S. From my, uh, you know, in interaction and engagement with my peers and colleagues in the U.K., it's come increasingly clear to me that the history of colonialism, you know, and that very um, ongoing uh, pervasive nature of how colonialism shapes British, you know, British culture and, you know, the entire, uh, uh, you know, the UK political uh, uh, landscape, right, is absolutely inseparable to understanding how Muslims uh, are, are, are you know, navigating the current situation. So, so for me, I think kind of talking through how race and colonialism um, play these particularly generative uh, roles in each of the setting is, is something I think deserves a lot more attention in both finding the commonalities and really exploring the ways in which uh, those of us on either side of the Atlantic can talk and, and create uh, new ways of understanding what is going on in these spaces. Great, great. And thank you, Sylvia, for kind of foregrounding the, the issue of, of race. Um, not only is it a kind of a central theme to our, our project, um, and not only are we going to do a dedicated Medan podcast on that issue, um, but we also want to kind of come back to it and dig a little deeper in the course of this conversation itself a little bit later on. Um, Khadija, could I invite you to kind of talk to us a little bit about how you see this question of the relationship and the, the, the kind of comparison between British and American Muslim communities? Yeah. Um, thank you very much, Peter. And um, yeah, just to start off by saying um, thank you so much for having me on here. It's, it's such a pleasure to to be part of this conversation in particular uh, to discuss this with yourself and, and, and Sylvia. Um, I, I actually... Um, I'm broadly in agreement with with, with Sylvia's comments um, about the centrality of both issues of race um, on the one hand in, in in the US and colonialism in the UK in terms of um, sort of um, uh, featuring very heavily um, in the um, understanding of the place um, and the evolving place of Muslims in each of these two countries. Um, I think I, one of the things I want to, I mean, a couple of issues that I want to draw attention to maybe that haven't yet been discussed include, um, if we're talking um, sort of a, a little bit further down um, in the chronology, if we're looking at post-war immigration in um, of Muslim communities and settlement 
of Muslim populations in, in the UK and the US. I think we've got um, important distinctions of socioeconomic uh, backgrounds um, of people who, who settled in both of these um, uh, countries. So if we look at the profiles of Muslims in the UK um, who arrived um, in the sort of late 40s through to the 50s, 60s and beyond, um, a lot of them um, were people who, who, who came from uh, the Indian subcontinent, so uh, India and Pakistan, uh, from very rural areas, who settled, um, in contrast to where they, where they came from, who settled in very urban areas in the UK to work in very um, sort of uh, manual uh, uh, employment um, and to fill in a gap after the war. Um, whereas in contrast to that, um, our perception of, of people in, in, in the States who arrived um, a bit later down the line uh, from, from a range of different Muslim-majority countries uh, tended to be people with more professional backgrounds who came um, uh, to engage in the professions, to study. Um, and I think that shaped the nature of the communities that developed from those um, immigrant um, origins of, of immigrants um, in terms of their aspirations, in terms of institution building, in terms of um, sort of their perceptions of themselves and their place um, uh, and, and the kind of relationships that they went on to have with uh, wider society, with the state, um, uh, and more widely. So um, so I think that's something that crops up a lot when we're, we're sort of considering um, sort of what well, Muslims in the UK talk about uh, Muslims in, in the States. This is something that, that crops up a fair amount. I think um, sort of... More anecdotally, sort of more on a, on a sort of conversational level, um, when I'm speaking to people, um, something that I perceive a lot in terms of perceptions of um, Muslims in, in the in the across the Atlantic, as it were, across the pond, is um, this something of a, a, a sort of. I mean, there's a sense that there's a, a kind of relatability in terms of culture, for sure. Um, so there is a common language, um, and that's something that's mediated, whether through popular culture. Um, or through sort of, uh, you know, various media technology, that kind of thing, spaces where people express themselves, I suppose, cultural production. Um, the, but there's also a, something of a kind of humorous sense of uh, one-upmanship. So, you know, sometimes scoffing at, uh, at certain things that, oh, you know, American Muslims do because, you know, British people sort of do them a different way. I don't know if you can relate to this, Sylvia, or if there's something you've ever come across. <laughs> I don't know if there's a converse sort of uh, form of this from, from, from where you are. And I think that's part of actually... Um, that's part of our, our British identity, I suppose, that, you know, I mean, you can see this reflected sort of more generally in Britain, not just within Muslim spaces, that people sort of look to the states in a, in a sort of, um, <laughs> I'm trying to put this politely. So, <laughs> no, 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 so, so, Khadija, since we all love stereotypes. <laughs> yeah, um, bring it. Yeah, good, bring it, yeah. Can, you know, can you tell us what, what, no, no, what, no, what, no, what is the British Muslim... What is the British Muslim stereotype of an American Muslim? <laughs> oh, brilliant. Okay. So, um, no, I mean, it's, it's difficult to distill, but I think, um, <laughs> so, so yeah, there, I, I think there is a definite sense of uh, sort of, we do things a bit better or a little bit sort of more, um, how to say, uh, kind of, um, we carry ourselves slightly more in a, in a refined way, I suppose. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I'm not saying that this is what I think, but these are these are definitely sort of yeah stereotypes that that come across. But at the same time, um, I, I, I do increasingly, I, I think increasingly with the younger generations, if we're talking like sort of millennials, 
um, and that kind of thing. There, there is, um, there is definitely this sense of exchange and relatability, um, and um, you know, um, mutual understanding that you see um, between uh, young Muslims in the UK uh, and in and in the, in the US. Um, so yeah, I mean, I actually be really interested to hear what Sylvia thinks about this because I, I'd, be, I'd love to hear it from somebody from from the other side, as it were. Sylvia, yeah, any, no, any... I mean, I'm, I'm listening, and I, <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think it's, I think it's, 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 it's hu- definitely humorous. But mm. you know, I think just generally, from my perspective, you know, the perception is, and again, this is about how Americans, not just American Muslims, but Americans in general, are so saturated in racial thinking, mm. um, is that. Our perception a lot of the times is that the vast majority, and this this says something, I mean, so the vast majority, and I think this is actually in terms of demographics actually true, the vast majority of Muslims in the UK are South Asian, right? Even though, of course, there are others. And so that really kind of shapes the perception over the ways in which Muslims um, are sort of you know, colonial subjects or something, you know, in some way so this, or the other. Sorry to, I don't mean to interrupt, but it's interesting that you say that. And I think that's telling of a little bit of your perception. So yeah, absolutely. There is a predominance uh, demographically of South Asian Muslims, uh, but that's declining. And, you know, so we're right. at, yeah, we're, I mean, we're looking, we're in the 60%, I think, of, of South Asian Muslims uh, in the UK as a whole. Obviously, there are some areas where it's much more of a predominance and some areas where it's much less. Right. And this um, is the, the this But it is, is definitely piece... declining and becoming more diverse. Um, Absolutely. And and again, like we see, like when you look more closely, you mm-hmm. see this rise in the number of African, yeah. you know, British Muslims from Africa or, you know, just from all over, you know, the diaspora or from, from you know, a, a plethora of places. But the perception because yeah. of, again, history, and then you have people like Sadiq Khan, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the mayor of London, and we see these things and we go, oh, yeah, look at the, the South Asian Muslims are the ones who are the face yeah, absolutely. absolutely. In the yeah. UK, right? They're the face. They are the ones who are assimilating into these positions and they have these speaking positions. And so that is is contrasted to in the US. So for example, you know, I always ask people, you know, who are a couple who are Muslim Americans you can name? And the first people they'll name is uh, Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Those are who you name when you think of American Muslims. Or people might say, you know, if they're if they're more you know, well versed, they'll they'll say, you know, Lupe Fiasco or Most Deaf if they're mm-hmm. into hip hop or something mm-hmm. like that. So that's that's the difference, I think, of the perception that again, it's a racial difference, mm-hmm. right? There's a particular type of racialized body that's associated with Islam in the UK, and there's a particular type of racialized body, which is interesting. Again, the U.S. situation—that's who people can name, but that's not who in a post 9-11 America, people see as Muslims. So these are all distinctions um, that I think are interesting and significant. Khadija, any final thoughts on this before we switch gears a bit? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's, it's fascinating. And I, 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 I concur that for sure um, the, the, the race um, aspect um, is key, I think, in understanding, not just in wider public's understanding of of, of of Muslims in in both the US and the UK, but in each uh, sort of in, in Muslim um, populations within within each of those countries, understanding of the of the their um, 
I suppose, um, the others. Um, so, so yeah, no, I'm happy to move on. Okay. So Sylvia, I, you know, I think it's fair to say that in the United States, the, um, state of political discourse, uh, <laughs> is in a, in a particular, which is going through a particular moment right now, right? So we've, we've had an ongoing discussion about race. We've had an ongoing discussion about women and feminism. We've had Me Too. And, and of course, we've been having a discussion about Islam and Muslims. So as a scholar whose work deals with the intersectionality of all three of these, race, gender, and Islam, could you talk a little bit about the varied responses and positionalities of American Muslim women of color to the present circumstances? Yes, uh, that is a really, <clears throat> you know, uh, vibrant, living, fraught question to be, uh, you know, discussing in May 2019, uh, in a moment in which, you know, we have some of our first. Muslim female members uh, in the House of Representatives in the U.S. And at the same time, it seems almost daily, we have uh, new charges and criticisms and ways of delegitimizing their authority that arise in our political uh, landscape every single day. So I'm talking about um, the, the representatives Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar who have been in the news just constantly uh, over the past few months since they've been elected to the House. And I think, I, I think using them uh, to think about the ways in which race, gender, um, and Islam and Muslim identity intersect are, are, are fruitful, right? Because we see over and over again uh, in the news cycle that they are tar- being targeted, you know, historically, in the ways that women of color have been targeted, delegitimized, kind of pushed to the side of movements, having their voices not uh, resonate within kind of people's common sense understandings of what it means to be, you know, an ideal citizen or someone who can represent. But on the other hand, you know, for Rashida Talib, she's Palestinian American. For Ilhan Omar, she's Somali American, but she's a black woman, right? Those identities are being amplified or refracted through the fact that they are Muslims as well. And so you see the full force of history kind of uh, 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 reflecting histories of how women of color have been silenced and marginalized and delegitimized, right? On top of the idea that Islam represents some sort of fifth column threatening presence in the U.S. and they are, you know, that history uh, of race and gender that they embody is now being kind of reiterated uh, through this new uh, um, this new juncture between Islam and terror or Islam and threat, right? So, yeah. so you see the ways in which, in the U.S. context, these you know these intersectional categories race gender class class too sexuality and now islam become for these women in this moment who cons- i mean literally every day are being accused of treason like you know having people from the highest echelons of power from the president downward calling for them to be you know kicked out of the house or asking for their resignations right you see how their bodies and their identities in this moment create 
the perfect storm yeah. of what a certain group of people think is absolutely not American, yeah. right? On the other hand, you know, of that, you know, what is the, the fascinating response and what I think, you know, as the optimist in me sees as what they are doing in political discourse in this country is they are pushing, I think, the vast majority of Americans to imagine another type of way of being black, a woman, uh, you know, from the working class mm -hmm. uh, and a Muslim and how that relates to what this nation is, what being American means, expanding notions of citizenship. You know, I, I think Islam is actually finally pushing this conversation to a place where we can't go back. You know, we can't shove this back in the box, right? This is changing perceptions on every side of the political spectrum. And I think it's, it's really going to be something else to watch it play out. And, you know, inshallah, I really, you know, hope that those who are looking at expanding what it means to be an American and expanding our notions of citizenship and democracy, I, I, you know, I hope and pray those voices rise up as they're doing every day and continue to do so and are not silenced and are not marginalized. Yes, let's hope. Let's hope, Sylvia. Thanks. Thanks, Khadija. I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that the, the terms of the debate about things like immigration, belonging, identity, Muslimness, race, and gender, perhaps perhaps these function rather differently in the UK. Are, are there aspects of what Sylvia just described in the US context that strike you as relevant to the UK? And conversely, what aspects of the American experience don't translate so well transatlantically? Yeah, so I, it's, it's interesting because I, I think there is some resonance. I was just listening. And um, I, I, one of the things that strikes me is that actually... Um, some of the things that, that Sylvia is describing, I can I can really relate to observing them here in the UK sort of political and social context, except really for the fact that they're expressed in a different way. And that might come down to culture, uh, political culture, um, uh, more than anything. So, so, so for instance, the, the vilification and the delegitimizing of of Muslim public figures. That's definitely something that we've witnessed here. I mean, I think that the obvious example that comes to mind is, is the absolutely sort of outrageous um, Islamophobic campaign that the Conservative Party ran um, during the London mayoral elections in um, 2016, where they pretty much um, accused Sadiq Khan of, of basically sympathizing with ISIS um, and, and, you know, suggested that if people vote for him, then uh, London would directly be a threat of, of, of terrorist attacks uh, because he'd be at the helm, stuff like this. Um, now, we don't have somebody like Donald Trump who, who's, who's got a Twitter account and, and sort of tweets um, in, in quite the same way. Um, so Theresa May uses different methods. And, you know, I think that, again, as I say, that's down to political culture. But we have sort of, sort of somebody like Boris Johnson, for instance, who... Um, in writing uh, his, his his column in the in the Daily Telegraph, uh, compared was very careful to say I don't think the burqa should be banned, for instance, but compared Muslim women to letterboxes and bin bags, um, and we can trace again directly to this very British uh, sort of uh, style of writing. Uh, we can we can we can trace. Um, 
concrete examples of Muslim women being attacked in the street um, as a result of this. Uh, so, so this is uh, there's definitely a, a very similar environment where where people, whether whether they are public figures or just ordinary people in the street, are Muslims are being sort of um, really um, yeah at the center of, of, of a quite a vicious uh, combination of very potent uh, factors uh, that are really coming together in the current political climate. Um, securitization obviously comes into that in a, in a very big way. Just today, we've got um, a, a major discussion that's erupted um, as a result of suggestions that the UK government tomorrow is going to um, refuse to endorse uh, a definition of Islamophobia that's been put forward by an all-party parliamentary uh, group um, after many, many months of deliberation and investigation. Um, and one of their reasons for doing this is because they are concerned that counterterrorism strategy will fall foul of this definition. Uh, so, I mean, it's kind of laughable on one level, but it's also a, a major indictment of the counterterrorism strategy in the UK that, I mean, the government's pretty much as good as admitting that it's Islamophobic. And that's why. <laughs> so, so, um, so, yeah, I, I think there, there, there is a lot um, of, of resonance in what Sylvia's describing, but I just think the way that it manifests itself is quite particular um, in, in, in each of the two um, contexts. So, so you know, th- this question of security and the UK government's prevent strategy, you know, which is part of its broader counterterrorism strategy, obviously has been a huge political lightning rod and a very polarizing issue within British Muslim communities. You know, and there's been something of a of a similar or parallel debate around issues of security, counterterrorism, and the role. Uh, of American Muslims vis-a-vis the U.S. government's version of PREVENT, which is mm-hmm. commonly called or used to be called Countering Violent Extremism or, or CVE. Um, S- S- Sylvia, have, have you kind of followed that issue at all in, in oh, the work absolutely. that you've done? Absolutely. Uh, in the U.K. or in the U.S.? No, in, in the U.S. Again, I'm trying to get a, get a sense of, of, you know, because at least in in my work on on. Um, uh, Islam in Britain, and in my discussion with and visits to the UK, um, you know th- this 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 question of prevent and the positionality of Muslim communities vis-a-vis prevent has been such a huge, arguably the kind of defining issue, you know, within Muslim community political discourse in in recent years. And so I'm just wondering, kind of you know, how that looks on the U.S. side of things right now. Oh, I mean, I think the issue of CVE has been extremely contentious, right? And again, once again, I mean, I hate to be like a broken record, but this so much, again, goes back to the race question. So the discussions around CVE in U.S. Muslim communities are generally around, you know, so, 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 so a lot of the tactics of, of the CVE, you know, programs have been to kind of say that they are working in co- collaboration with masjids, you know, and working in collaboration with Muslim communities where they will reach out to the board or the leadership of a particular mosque or a community and say, now let's, let's, let's work together, right? And so the question of whether you invite you know, CVE, um, uh, a, you know, agents or people who work with this this organization into the community and welcome them, right, is something that is very rooted in your particular perspective 
as an American? Like, what kind of American are you? Now, what has happened and kind of the really strong, you know, contentious debates that I've seen amongst people are for people who are more recent immigrants or who come from immigrant communities will say, you know, here I am. I've come to America for the American dream. America is this you know, magnanimous place, right? That welcomed my family and gives me so many opportunities. So yes, I would love to work with the state. I would love to work with the government to help you protect our communities and help you protect our country. Yeah. On the other hand, African-American Muslims, black Muslims who have been subject to, you know, COINTELPRO and, you know, knowing about the history of surveillance and profiling and violence on Black communities. Black Muslims who come out of this history are, you know, absolutely vehemently opposed. You know, many are to this type of, you know, presence in their communities. They, no good can come of it from that perspective. Right. And so you have these debates in which it's not just directly kind of down the line by race, like there are African American Muslims who have a different perspective and vice versa. Mm -hmm. But you have these sort of notions. And what it comes down to is how do you view the state? Do you view the state as um, a positive force that your community can work with and that you have faith and trust in? Or do you view the state with suspicion and legitimately so because of the ways in which the state has operated in your, in your communities in the past? And so this is, you know, in relation to CVE, I think this kind of represents some of the different um, 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 uh, responses to it within the U.S. Muslim community. Okay. Thanks. I, I want to move on to the topic of Me Too and to get a sense of how British and American Muslim communities have each experienced this enormously important uh, political and cultural moment. Obviously, there have been high profile cases involving figures such as Tariq Ramadan in the UK and European context and Noman Ali Khan in the US, both of which, uh, of course, raise larger questions about the phenomenon of Muslim celebrity culture, particularly with respect to male figures of religious authority. So Khadija, can, can we start with you on, on this one? Yeah. Um, so, so, so yeah, me too. Um, I think, um, it's been, it's been, um, an interesting, uh, couple of years. Um, you know, uh, in, t- in terms of, um, Muslims um, sort of engaging with this idea of the movement. I think more broadly, one question that I, I mean, I don't really have an answer to, but I, I think is worth discussing, is um, the, the the broader Me Too movement and the role and place of Muslim women and Muslims in general within that. Um, uh, you know, I think um, some of the vibes that I've been getting is that actually it's not been the most welcoming space for Muslims. Um, and, you know, how, how inclusive has it been of, of sort of the complexities of, of Muslim experiences? I think that's something that's definitely worth probing um, and highlighting. Um, within Muslim communities, I think that the couple of cases that you mentioned, um, they've been absolutely sort of, um, I mean, I, I'd, I'd say a few things come out of them. They've been very... Um, uh, so I, I mean, they've been, they've both been very, very big in terms of the impact that they've had. And I think yeah. I was, it was quite revelatory to see how, um, I mean, when the, when the Norman Ali Khan, um, uh, sort of, uh, the sort of scandal, I guess you could call it, uh, emerged, 
um, back in, I think it was 2017, um, just how much impact it had in the UK um, was was really interesting. I mean, it was quite telling of just how how much uh, following uh, U- US um, sort of personalities and scholars had in the UK, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and and how many people were were sort of affected by this. Um, I think one of the um, sort of interesting. Um, things to come out of this is how people have responded and so on one hand you've had a lot of people who've who've seen this as a sort of an opportunity to really go out in the open and be emboldened and talk about their own experiences Um, and so we've had um, in the UK a number of cases where people have come out and spoken about sort of local level small um, well I would small is not the, the word but I suppose um People who are less well known uh, cases where, where 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 of abuse or of of um, uh, of unethical behaviour and gone public with that. And I think part of the, the the confidence building behind that has been these high profile cases where people have felt like, actually you know somebody might listen to me or you know that that the, the, there there might be a sort of a channel where I can um, uh, actually not uh, keep this to myself. But it's also exposed how actually there's really a dearth of processes and institutions to deal with cases like this in our communities. They're, you know, it's, it's, it's all very well fine for somebody to say, yeah, I, you know, I'm confident enough to come up and, and talk about what's happened to me or what I've seen. Um, but then who do they actually go to? Who can they trust? Or to not just to listen, but to follow through and, and to be listened to and to, to, to actually uh, move forward with the situation. Um, there's also the, uh, the, the issue of a lot of what, you know, I mean, this came, uh, I think with the Tarek Ramadan issue, this was quite um, a, a contentious point that, you know, um, but also with Norman Al Khan, I, th- I think that the idea of, okay, there's a difference between, you know, what, have these guys actually done anything illegal um, from, from, a, from, a, from a legal point of view, um, vis a vis, you know, actually, Islamically speaking, has what they've done uh, been um, something sort of that's that's acceptable or haram if you want to put it like that um mm-hmm. and i think that's 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 something that that crops up often as a contentious uh point and i think people are still grappling with and trying to sort of come to terms with and what that means um so yeah that's uh, those are a few thoughts yeah. Sylvia, how about Me Too in the American Muslim context? I think in this particular case, it, it really highlights similarities, a lot of similarities between the U.S. and the U.K. And I would I would venture to say, though, you know, I, I'm not an expert, um, you know, beyond the U.S., uh, you know, of, of Muslim women in, in the West in, in broadly in Europe, too, that what I think the issue of Me Too and these you know, very prevalent conversations around sexual violence, uh, harassment of women, and, you know, just how pervasive it is in our society have um, compelled Muslim women to engage the conversation, right, in certain ways. But it also has highlighted tensions within the communities, within Muslim communities, and how we, within Muslim communities, talk talk about issues of gender and sexuality. In particular, it Mm -hmm. has highlighted the very contentious and difficult conversation uh, and interaction between Western-style second-wave feminism, Mm -hmm. right, and, 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 you know, women in Islam 
as well as more broadly, you know, Western second wave, um, you know, predominantly white feminism and its relationship with women of color. Right. And it's highlighted these rifts that have been going on for a while and the ways in which this particular uh, formation of feminism. And and I'm never one to say all feminism. I I want to be very specific that I'm talking about a type of uh, second wave white feminism that arose out of the social movements of the 1960s and 70s that really focused on a particular demographic of white women saying we want to enter the workplace, we want, you know, sexual freedoms, these types of things. And that has congealed into larger common sense understandings of what feminism is in our contemporary moment. This idea has been one that Muslim women, you know, from whatever you know, racial, ethnic, cultural background they're coming what, coming from, have to engage and have to make choices in terms of how they engage feminist movements. Because on the one hand, while of course the vast majority studies have shown of Muslim women in the West and in the U.S. support women working out of outside of the home, support you know education for women at the highest levels, support all of these types of, you know, seemingly uh, feminist types of phenomena, right? They're also contending with a mindset that has historically viewed and stereotyped Muslim women as oppressed, Mm -hmm. submissive, Mm -hmm. right? And use that type of thinking to more broadly demonize Islam and Muslims. Yes. So Muslim women are placed in between a rock and a hard, hard spot a lot of the times in thinking, how do I engage me too? Because on the one hand, again, like I said, of course, I, I, can, I don't know any Muslim woman you know, in the US or the UK who would not say sexual violence is Haram. It's absolutely forbidden. It's not something we engage in or condone in any way. I mean, I think you'd be hard pressed to find somebody who would say that. Right. But on the other hand, if I buy into kind of how Me Too is being circulated as a hashtag and how certain people are using it, am I again, am I then buying into the mindset that weaponizes feminism as a way to dehumanize Muslims? Right. So that's the conundrum that really plays out. And I see this, you know, in conversations with young Muslim women or women who are working through these issues in their own lives as a real source of pain, right? Trying to say, I, I, I believe in this, you know, I want to support this, you know, and I want to take these ideas of, you know, I want to get this support to, to, to speak out against an abusive imam in my community or something like that. Right. But then if you do that, you you throw your whole community over the bus under the bus yes. mm-hmm. right. and and in, in 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 and then you know on top of that islam becomes to blame right and that's that's the conundrum mm-hmm. and and when you add race into the picture you just get another layer of jeopardy right yeah Right. And I thought that was very latent in that room when we had, again, our workshop back in February, when we were talking about this issue. I mean, it was really clear that, like like Khadija said, these debates were not that different 
Mm -hmm. you know, around gender and how to speak out against certain power structures within, you know, mosque communities and within mosque power structures and how to deal with them within, you know, you know, spaces of the community. The similarities were absolutely there. And so was the, the, the pain, right. And, And the real sort of difficulty that women were confronting when trying to figure out how to deal with these issues mm-hmm. in the community because of this historical configuration of ideologies and different types of things that they're trying to maneuver. I mean, it's really um, a complicated situation. And I think Muslim women are really, you know, uh, working through a mm-hmm. lot of factors to think through how mm-hmm. to deal with these issues. Yeah, can I just say, I think, sorry. Yeah, please. Yeah, I, I think there is some, I mean, I absolutely agree with you, Sylvia. I think there are some parallels here with um, the securitization theme as well, that where we, we have situations where uh, Muslim women in particular, but also young people um, are trying to push for change or to, to make their voices heard in certain community spaces um, where traditionally they might have been marginalized or oppressed even or disadvantaged. And because of the per- all-pervading um, sort of uh, nature of securitization that really f- pushes them, any, anybody sort of criticizing conventional sort of community setups as a reformer versus sort of, um, you know, the archaic, backward, bad Muslim, uh, traditional conservative type thing. Um, it, it sort of places them in a spot where they feel actually very uncomfortable. Um, you know, this isn't what they want. And I think that's also quite contentious. And I can see that that parallel with the, with the Me Too um, issue as well, that people are sort of forced to either be on one side or the other, and actually they, they don't want to, but they still want to be a force for good within their communities on their own terms. Um, and I think that's key. Um, but but it's, it, and it's quite oppressive when, the, when they're sort of denied that opportunity because of these very strong forces that they have to contend with. Yeah. So I, I, I want to finish up by asking you each to talk a little bit about your recent books. Um, Khadija published uh, Muslim Identity Politics, Islam Activism and Equality in Britain with I.B. Torres last year. And Sylvia's book, Being Muslim, A Cultural History of Women of Color in American Islam, came out fairly recently with New York University Press. Um, Khadija, in your book, you argue that despite a common perception of Muslim activism as being emblematic of a sort of communalist ethos and, and driven by a sense of unique victimhood, that there's actually been a marked evolution in British Muslim public advocacy over the three decades since the Rushdie affair in the late 80s. Can you tell us a little bit of, about what these shifts have looked like and, and where things stand at present? Yeah, okay, sure. So, so if, we, if we look back to, to Rushdie, uh, we're talking uh, sort of late 1980s, 1988, 9, through to the early 1990s. Yeah. Um, this was really uh, a period where uh, existing British Muslim organizations, and there were actually many um, uh, at that time, um, really for the first time organized on, on, a, on a national scale um, in a coherent fashion to represent um, what they considered to be the Muslim community to the state um, in, 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 a, in a way that aspired to um, emulate uh, the pre-existing Board of Deputies of British Jews. Um, and at that time, um, so we, we're talking a situation where the equalities legislation that we are familiar with now in the UK 
was still sort of a distant dream. I mean, it's it's only um, the, the current equalities legislation that brings together, um, you know, anti um, uh, uh, racist uh, race discrimination, religious discrimination, um, sort of age discrimination, uh, various protect sexuality, various protected characteristics. This has only come in um, from 2010 onwards in a standardised. Uh, recognizable way. So 30 years prior, um, religious discrimination was still absolutely legal um, in, in the workplace or in, in, in other contexts in the UK. Uh, blasphemy laws uh, protected only Anglican Christianity. Uh, so, so the Rishti Fair was really a trigger for Muslim communities to stand up and say, well, there's a major, we are disadvantaged legally as, as a faith community, as a minority community, and we want to be uh, given uh, the same rights as everybody else. Uh, so I call this sort of uh, discussion, um, I, I refer to it in my book as the equality gap. So they're drawing attention to a gap in equalities in the UK. Um, and this really framed uh, a lot of campaigning uh, that happened um, during the period of the new Labour government headed by Tony Blair, uh, who, which came in in 97. Uh, and a lot of milestones were reached as a result of this, actually. They enjoyed a fairly good relationship. Um, some representative organizations enjoyed a fairly good relationship with the state. Um, but, but yeah, how it's shifted. Okay. Um, uh, so, I, I, you know, I, the, the, I, I think one of the reasons why things have shifted has been um, sort of the post-9-11 era, I guess, and how that's impacted the way that Muslims see themselves and forced them to think in different ways. And what we're seeing at the moment is a situation where partly due to being uh, snubbed by the government uh, quite majorly um, or engaged with on the basis of very firm conditionality that uh, isn't um, used, you know, quite unfairly in the sense that it's not used with other minority groups. Um, so uh, Muslim advocacy groups have then been sort of forced into a spot where they either engage with the state on the state's terms and only the state's terms and therefore sort of um, really uh, have to sort of put their hands up and, and, and say, well, you know, we, we can't, we can only sort of um, engage sort of on the basis of what, what, what is pre-approved or what's been cherry picked by the state or actually um, set up on their own in their own spaces and do their own thing, which often means looking to the grassroots and building grassroots alliances. And I think this is um, one of the sort of rich areas that I think are, are worth looking at, in particular in the current moment where we're seeing a huge rise of populism and uh, a mainstreaming of nativist thinking and far-right thinking in our politics, uh, where Muslims have engaged you know, whereas previously they would have always engaged as Muslims politically. Now we see Muslims who are very confidently Muslim engaging in, in sort of in broad alliances um, uh, to to achieve social goals that are sort of much broader than just Muslim interests. Um, so yeah, that's uh, sort of in a nutshell what I mean by that. Great. No, this is this is fascinating stuff, um, Sylvia. Being Muslim opens with the intriguing point that that there's a particular heuristic power inherent in exploring the construction of and particular lived experiences of Muslim womanness or, or, or the Muslimness of women, if you want to put it that way. And I'll, I'll quote here from the book. Whether one is a third-generation Black American Muslim, 
a recent immigrant from Pakistan, a Mexican-American convert, or a Syrian refugee, posing the question of how to be a Muslim woman in the United States offers insights into how Muslimness is produced and sustained against white Christian social and cultural norms, as well as allowing us to see how Islamic identities and practices have evolved in relation to the shifting political exigencies of our times. Could, could I ask you to unpack this central point of the book a bit, perhaps with reference to the varied positions that women you portray in this book hold toward feminism? You, you, you got into this a little bit. Um, over the last question, um, but but would love to kind of hear more. Yes, uh, thank you for uh, giving me the chance to talk about uh, the book a bit, and and I actually think uh, so much of what Khadija was just saying about the relationship with the state and the ways yes. in which the changing kind of presence and role of the state is such a forceful, ongoing kind of factor in Muslim women's lives. Um, in the West, I mean, more broadly. And so in my book, uh, I try to offer um, a selective history uh, of Muslim women's presence, existence, ways of being uh, in the United States from the early 20th century to the present. Um, I think the, the last example is from 2015. And as I was trying to write the book and kind of conceptualize it, Something that came up or, or a question people would ask me is, are you trying to find a type of universal identity for these women? Are you trying to uh, find similarities between them and what it means to be Muslim, right? And, 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 and I thought about that a lot. Uh, what's interesting about the U.S. context, or not interesting, I mean, what's distinctive about the U.S. context in relation to Islam is that prior to the 1970s, the vast majority of Muslims, you know, quite a small population, but the vast majority of Muslims in the United States were African American because of, uh, you know, because of history, because of the ways in which Islam, you know, uh, was mostly prevalent in African American communities until that time. And so because that is the historical record, right, there is a particular way, I argue, that Islam emerged as a type of uh, socially oriented type of religious, spiritual, political, and cultural orientation within U.S. communities that were engaging Islam, right? It was because, first of all, in a predominantly Christian, predominantly white society, there was little to no understanding um, or acknowledgement of what it meant to be Muslim. Right? How do you how do you make your Muslimness in a country where mm -hmm. there's no such thing? Mm -hmm. And that was how I approached the question. So, in that quote that you just read, or in that passage you just read. My response to the question, you know, I've come to understand my response more fully now um, after the book is published, after the book's been published, is that I was never trying to find some sort of flattening um, or sameness between, you know, all those women that you named or that I named in that passage, a Syrian refugee, a Mexican-American convert, an African-American woman, a Pakistani, you know, second generation Pakistani-American. I'm not trying to find some similarity in terms of how they, um, you know, how they are Muslim, like in terms of their practices or, you know, how, what I was trying to capture 
was the 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 process of how you 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 engage muslimness and how this in turn becomes an embodied uh, uh, uh kind of affect in your everyday life right so if you live in a country in which islam is this primarily you know uh, 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 this religion that's primi- primarily associated with black and brown bodies with this sort of foreign foreign exotic you know places right and then it is also seen as sort of oppositional and associated with blackness and and black insurgency in a certain way it already mm-hmm. exists in the cultural imaginary a certain way and i argue that women continually you know have to engage that whether they are cognizant aware of it or not and in that engagement right whether you know that forms a political landscape that is where being muslim emerges both in the spaces of their lives and as a collective presence and so that was what i was trying to capture with that it's not proscriptive the book is not trying to say yes this is how we should be muslim in order to enfranchise our communities but a way of capturing the complexity of that identity and and stressing really stressing the importance of understanding the historical context in which muslimness is being iterated and reiterated at different moments in time right so i always say a muslim woman who's living right now in 2019 in trump's america right there's a certain you know stereotype and set of meanings that goes along with what muslimness is the same notion of muslimness did not exist in 1955 for someone like betty shabazz who was malcolm x's wife and then widow right and we have to understand that it will continue to shift at different moments in time because of the political circumstances at hand and that's what it means to be a muslim woman in a non-muslim western country and in this particular case the US um in which that context is so critical to the very ways in which you are muslim great now oh, thank you sylvia so i i hope that hearing a little bit about both khadija and sylvia's books will make you uh uh, go get hold of a copy. We'll we'll have links to both of them on uh, the landing page for this podcast. Um, unfortunately, we are just about out of time. Sylvia Khadija, it's been wonderful to spend the last hour with you. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise and for letting us hear from and and learn from you. Thank you. Thank you. So yes. Much. Thank you so much, Peter, and thank you, Khadija. Thank you so for all you. your insights. So to our listeners, if if you would like to learn more about the Muslim Atlantic Project, we have just just launched a very modest project website at www.muslimatlantic.com. Um, it, over the course of the conversation we just had, uh, Sylvia and Khadija um, referenced on a couple of occasions a, a workshop that we were all at together in London in February 2019 um, focused on gender in the Muslim Atlantic. And you'll be able to find a little bit of information about that workshop there, as well as some of the other activities and forthcoming publications coming out of the project. Um, and of course, we hope that you will continue to avail yourselves of the wonderful resources, commentary, articles um, available on the Maidan 
um, at www.themaidan.com. And most of all, we hope that you will tune in and join us next time on the next edition of the Maidan podcast. I'm Peter Mandeville uh, from the Alivoral Ox Center for Global Islamic Studies. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you.